Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Live with the, the master of behavioral finance, the shrink of shrinks, Mr. Dan Egan. The shrink of shrinks, Mr. Dan Egan. Um, for those of you who don't know Dan, uh, you should definitely listen to the podcast that Adam did with uh, with him a couple of weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago. Um, but Dan, why don't you, for those who haven't, who don't know uh, a lot about your background, why don't you uh, give us a little bit of uh, what you've done in the past? And um, well, yeah, I, I think let's let's first of all, gentlemen, it's a Friday oh, yeah. afternoon. The markets are closed. I'm I'm having a uh, Came in light as a nice brewski. Look, look at the brews across the table here. Excellent. Cheers. Yeah, a little Corona action on Corona time. Ah, and uh, yeah, today is oh behave, you dirty rascal. So just as a reminder, these riffs are um, a happy hour take in these times of COVID when those of us in the finance industry can't necessarily get out and about and share some discussions and thoughts over a happy hour beverage. And uh, today is a classic happy hour in that um, Adam has been held up a little bit. He's in traffic on the phone, you know, so he's going to be a little bit late to the happy hour, but will be joining us. I'll also remind everybody, these are for entertainment purposes. The conversations will be uh, wide ranging and wandering and we'll cover topics that we expect and don't expect. And so if you're looking for an investment uh, investment advice, maybe you shouldn't get it here, but get it from a professional in your jurisdiction. And uh, we're going to have some fun with our conversations. So please enjoy. And uh, without further ado, I think I'll let Dan introduce himself. Sure. Thank you. Just I, I picked up in the beginning there. There's a little bit of Canada coming through in your abouts. That was wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> I heard that in a while. <laughs> Wait till you hear me say process. <laughs> uh, so yeah, who, well, why am I here? Um, so go back to sort of college days uh, when you're trying to pick a major um, I was interested in both psychology, but not the sort of like um, abnormal or feeling stuff, just kind of how to make how do people make decisions and try and make good decisions and where do they go awry. Um, so lots of interesting stuff there. I also um, wanted to do it in a way that was kind of going to give me a good career, uh, a good return on that college investment. And so I had to do economics as well. And I ended up kind of not trying to make a choice between those two things, but combine them. Uh, so I, after undergrad, went to uh, London School of Economics, where they had at that time, this was like 15 years ago, 18 years ago. I'm not sure how old I am. Um, it was a long time ago. And they had a decision science program where you go in and you learn about how people make decisions, but also how groups and organizations make decisions, how they make bad decisions and good decisions. It was an excellent, like, one year's master's program. Um, was very lucky there in that one of my classmates was doing it part-time, and he worked for a private equity fund. Uh, so he said, do you want to come and work with us when you finish this? And I said, I have no idea about private equity at all, but I'll try it wow. out. Um, it did it for a year and it was wonderful. It was a, a sort of very rough and tumble, you know, like you're in the trenches on everything, introduction to finance and how things work. And after about a year, um, there was a job advert that went out that Barclays in the UK wanted to open up an applied behavioral finance team. Uh, and so applied for that. And against all odds and all good common sense, they gave me a position there. Uh, we work primarily with high net worth individuals. You know, there's a lot that you can do when somebody has a lot of money in terms of tailoring their portfolios, their investments, their tax planning. And what we were trying to do is say, 
people are different psychologically. How can we incorporate that into the services, how we communicate with them and the investments uh, that we offer them? So did that for about seven or eight years. Uh, it was wonderful. We had you know, an incredible build out both of technology, but also training with advisors and working with them and the investment product people to understand how investments are going to feel, uh, taste different to different people. Um, one of the things that I ended up sort of feeling was lacking was um, in a lot of cases, the technology that advisors have to use to report and interact with clients. You know, you might sit down in a meeting and say, here's our financial plan, here are our priorities, here's why and how we're investing this way. And then they get sort of non-differentiated quarterly performance reports. They don't don't link back to the conversation you had, don't link back to the purposes or goals. Um, very hard to change performance reporting into a way that's going to dovetail with the way your client thinks. So it's at that point that I felt like actually the technology is a bit of a limitation here, that we need to work on that. And um, I went to Betterment mostly because there was an opportunity to say, what if we just change the, the technology and the design directly? You know, what could we do with that? Um, it's less expensive. We can scale it out to more people. You can work um, across a wider range of people and, and work directly with software engineers. So I've been with them for about uh, seven years now. I think I just had my seven year anniversary. And it's been everything that I thought it would be in terms of being able to work directly at a tech company. Um, so it's an interesting thing that it's a tech company that does finance rather than a finance company that has a tech cost center. And so when um, do you find that you have it's it's got a little bit of a, a nice area to be able to do experiments with a lot of data that you might otherwise not have? Yes do and you, no. Are you constantly doing tests and A-B testing or if you really wanted to spend your life doing white papers, could you churn them out on a monthly basis based on the type of stuff that's going on in there? Yeah, I think yes and no. So there are some tests that are are like that. That um, So for instance, when we started off, we have a, a feature called Tax Impact Preview, where when a client goes to change an allocation or take money out, it calculates the tax impact that'll be due ahead of time and shows it to them. So that's something that people are doing all the time. They're going in uh -huh. and you know changing their allocation, um, withdrawing. That's just a normal course of business thing. So we were able to get really high um, sample rates on it and learn very quickly from it. One of the, the funny things uh, for me has been that trying to run interventions that are specifically about something that happens infrequently, like a big drawdown, are much harder because you need to have like set up the experiment and what you're going to change and how you're going to divide it amongst people and then wait. Because, you know, I don't know when they're happening. Um, so sometimes the most interesting experiments either don't get pulled off or are done at the last minute halfway through a draw drawdown is um, sometimes what happens is that we can sort of turn on um, content, communications, et cetera, but it happens after a drawdown's happened rather than in advance of it. So definitely in terms of the breadth of people that it hits, being able to look at how, for example, men and women interact differently um, with different designs and in different markets has been fantastic. So that said, like, the, yes, there's um, in certain cases, you can glean insights very quickly. In other cases, you have to be really patient because the market doesn't do what you want as quick as you want. Ever. Got it. That's interesting. Yeah. What, going back to your journey through school, what were I, I sort of remember my behavioral finance journey, if you will. What were some of the biggest surprises, revelations, things that stuck with you as you went through you know, decision-making and the oddities, you're sort of in this, these, these formative stages in your life. You, you, at least for me, you think things run very tidily. You think that things are quite sorted, if you will. 
And then you go through a behavioral finance course and you're, and you're, you're left with your brain just on the ground uh, and you have to scrape it all back in the bucket and start to try and figure out, okay, wait a second, nothing's real almost. And you, you just kind of, I find myself in this cycle as the decades go by and I don't know if it's gotten any better, but what, for you, what were the, what were the sort of the highlight moments where you're like, wow, okay, this is, this is strange. The world is not as it would seem. Yeah. I think I, I love that aspect of it. Number one, because I think it's accessible to everybody. You know, if you're not amazing at math, you might not be able to get into some of the more quantitative stuff. Um, but that idea of that, like, wait, I have to figure out how I make decisions and how I might make mistakes. That's accessible to everybody to sort of ponder over. And it also gives you that greater depth of experience. Like, okay, the world is a much richer, more interesting place than I thought. Um, two of them jump out at me. One, one of which was, um, Dan Gilbert did a study about how good we are at predicting what's going to make us happy, right? So basically everything you do comes down to, I'm going to do something and it'll make me happy in the future. So I'm going to go, go and plan on that. Might be short-term, might be long-term. Um, and of course, all the time we do things where it doesn't make us happy. You know, you, you kind of end up drinking too much. It's a, it's a fun night, but it's a really bad day the next day. <laughs> it's a fun night and a bad morning. Yeah. Uh, a bad day. Like uh, may, I am of an age where a hangover is not merely a morning phenomena. It is an all day phenomena. So Post riff is like that for me all the time. It's yeah. just one hour's worth of drinking is enough for me to just be exactly. gone for the rest of the day. I, um, I will point out, I'm drinking a non-alcoholic beer. Every behavioral person has a strong respect for placebos. So I'm getting, I don't know, like 50 or 60% of the hit and none of the regrets. There you go. Sure. sure. Um, so I'm drinking one, a light beer, but I'm going to drink them 20 to 30% faster. <laughs> <laughs> much like the low fat sour cream, how you give yourself so much more that it doesn't help. It's the same thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that, that was a big one. Was this sort of, um, you know, like realizing that we make decisions sometimes right now in a way that makes us unhappy in the future. And we could have known that and avoided it. Um and uh, Dan Gilbert actually went through a divorce, I believe. And like a big part of the book was a very humane aspect of like, here's how to watch out for things that seem like they're really good and fun and pleasant in the moment, but are going to have, you know, longer term consequences that you can avoid if you're thoughtful about them. Um, another one, which it still sticks with me today is being one of the like real fundamental um, philosophical questions of what makes us happier experiences is Kahneman had this thought experiment of imagine I'm going to, uh, I offer you this thing where I can send you on the most amazing vacation week long, exactly what you wanted, whatever it is, skydiving, tropical islands by yourself, a yacht, whatever it is. Um, the key is that I'm going to give you a pill and you'll enjoy all of it and be completely cognizant of it. And then you won't be able to remember any of it. You're just going to forget it. No pictures. You will not be able to bank that experience for the future. How much would you pay for that? Um, and a lot of people say like pretty much nothing, you know, like what's the point of an amazing experience if you can't come back to it and remember it and relive it. <laughs> so this idea of kind of like a point in time of like pleasure or something versus, um, you know, like I've, I've got things set up where it shows me pictures of like past his, uh, past vacations with my kids and everything. And that's like the opposite, right? That's like, this constant flow of positive experiences that makes you happy. So those two things end up mingled in um, 
throughout it as being like core questions about why are people doing certain things? Is it sort of like a, a misunderstanding of what's going to make them happy or like um, a great example, bringing it over to investing is this thing called the disposition effect where, um, you know, like it feels good to have a position that's done really well. Right. Um, and so people tend to want to um, close it out and be like, I made a good decision. There we go. The flip side of it's really weird where if you've made a loss in a position, they just want it to break to even. And so they will hold on to that position until it gets to even, and then they sell it. Um, and it's bizarre because if you have something that you think is going to go up, holding on to something that you have no reason to think is going to go up, it just makes no sense. But that that sense of like something will feel bad right now if I do it, and I'm going to therefore do something that doesn't make sense, that that keeps coming up over and over again. That um, doing something right now for immediate pleasure versus making a smart long-term decision. The the one the one marshmallow versus two marshmallows. I think that that whole story reminded me of, Something my wife said to me. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I don't so, do not have that discussion with my wife if you don't mind. Like, not have oh no, guys, he's here. <laughs> Look at the background too. Eh? What that, blue, that green screen you got going is terrible. <laughs> Great green know, screen, exactly. Just throwing it in everybody's face. It's a little, yeah, a little dark, I guess. But uh, <laughs> trying something new. I was having a Corona. I thought I got to sit outside. Absolutely. Fair enough. Okay, so, where are we, guys? You know. Well, I wanted to to touch a bit upon like you've done you've done all this behavioral work in in your academic life, you've done it throughout your professional career. You've acquired what I, I think a lot of people in the business that have been in in portfolio management, uh, advisory, wealth, and behavioral finance. It's a bit of a superpower to know what ten, what levers you can pull in order to get people to do the right thing, right? And I guess the big question is. The right thing, who who is the arbiter of what the right thing is, right? This superpower can be for good and for bad. And I wonder, when, there, is, there tends to be, when I think of uh, robo-advisors, oftentimes a tendency for possibly um, a principal agency issue where you have something that you know would increase the ROI of the organization uh, in the face of what is actually going to be best for the investor. How do you guys deal with that? Uh, and and you know, I, I'm I'm sure you've talked about it internally, but I'd be curious to know how you guys manage that that uh, principal agency problem. One of, so first thing, it's you're absolutely right. It's something that we take very very seriously. It's like a one of um, you talk to a number of um, the behavioral people across the board. I believe Christine Benz at Morningstar, or it might have been a uh, Sarah Newcomb, put out kind of like an ethical guide to doing this sort of stuff for behavioral people because it can feel like a lot of power. Um, but I think it's very important to understand the nature of that power because it's not actually as powerful as you think. This is, I am not able to sort of Obi-Wan Kenobi people into, you know, like these are not the droids you are looking for. Um, what you often see or where your power is, is when the client or the person doesn't have a strong point of view or desire to do something specific. They're you know, they have an amorphous preference. They have like a motivation or a, a desire, but not any clear, this is what I want to do. Um, so <laughs> standard behavioral thing about defaults, right? Um, uh, if you default people into saving a certain amount and auto escalating it year after year, they'll usually go ahead with it. They'll save more. It's not something that they strictly object to. Um, but you can't say that they're not allowed to do anything else. And if somebody comes in and says, actually, I want to save 1%, not 9% this year, they're going to do it. They will find some way to do that thing that they view as being right. Um, so one thing is, you know, we're a 
an advisor like anybody else, that means that clients can leave if they feel like they are not being served in a, a proper manner. So the defaults mostly exist when there isn't strong client views or preferences about something. Anytime you try and really constrain or restrict or like manipulate people, it doesn't work too well. What does work is saying, if you're coming in and you don't have strong views, and we have to remember like, a lot of people don't really have strong views about what their asset allocation should be or what fund is best. Um, they want it to be easy and simple. And so the power comes from saying to yourself, what is, you know, if I'm some kind of a like benevolent, but like backseat dictator, what is the right thing for people who don't have strong views about something and what should I put them in? And I think that is, uh, you know, like an ethical and, um, kind of like a powerful thing, but it doesn't ever oppress people from doing what they wanted to do anyway. It's more a matter right. of like, you can, it's more, it's the whole idea of nudging in, in behavioral finance, right? Yeah. Like that term is you can nudge a broad audience to do better by using things like anchoring. I think we were going to have uh, Emily Hazley on from BlackRock. Sadly, she wasn't able to come on last minute, but one of the pieces that she had written was on how do you nudge somebody to save more, right? And they had a, a bunch of experiments. And basically, I think the a good example was you send a bunch of emails. Some of them say, you know, you should try to to save 15% more uh, per year or 15% of your uh, more than on your bonus than other emails that would say 1%. And you could see that those emails, those people that received the 15% email uh, were, were saving not 15%, but 3% more than those that were sent the say 1% more, right? So that, that anchoring um, does work. You're, you're able to nudge people towards what you want them to do. And in that case, it's actually quite useful. Um, on the flip side of that, I found when I was an advisor, when it came to savings, uh, to, to, their, to people in retirement, that you wanted them, you know, they needed to use their money. A lot of people are great at saving, uh, putting money away makes sense, but taking money out, yeah, they're not so great, right? And so you have the opportunity to anchor them to take out more so they can actually live their life the way they should. They actually take advantage of the, the hard work they put into those savings and they're opposed to it. And of course, the advisor wants higher AUM, um, but what's best for that individual is to use some sort of anchoring to, to get them to take out more on a year-to-year -year basis. And so those are the conflicts that I'm seeing, uh, those, those nudging you can still, it might not be the Obi-Wan Kenobi, you get them to do 15%, but it is, um, you do have power to, to nudge and a 3% difference is quite, quite a I'm bit. Not, I'm not sure I, I buy. So give me an example of we, oh, we, we think there right. could be a conflict of interest like honestly i'm i'm, I'm struggling when to see where some some behavioral aspect of behavioral finance from anyone from a robo or an advisor is uh, crosses the line in behavioral finance versus your right to sell your your right to market and i'm not asking broad <laughs> so oh. so from from okay. the perspective of <laughs> Of, of I, I, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Kind of like, yeah, I mean, you're allowed to sell, you're allowed to market, you're allowed to do what you're allowed to do as a business, an ongoing business. And I just don't see this conflict of interest on the behavioral side. I don't see it. I don't see how you're going to manipulate your clients. I just don't see that. I mean, I can see that there's around a, the edges, you might be well, able to educate. There's a reason why there's a, there's a, my monitor has that than, code of ethics. So. Anyone else? Sorry. I didn't hear what you guys said. Do you mean like 
because the whole the, the the nature of this business is is in in large part sort of around persuasion there's there's lots of ambiguity about what the actual right thing is um that any argument about these types of values is sort of so I think one of the um, the great examples that's been through the the sort of literature a large a large number of times is defaults, and the original default paper showed that basically if you flip it um, in terms of organ donation, where you say opt in mm-hmm. to be an organ donor versus opt out to be an organ donor, it flipped everything in terms of who would sign up. Now, that didn't mean that those organ donations went through. What ended up happening was that families or after the fact there were always snags saying. The person didn't really sign up for this. It was simply a default on a form and the family could fight it. And those organ organ donations didn't actually go through. So this is um, now come up with in the behavioral finance literature, generally behavioral stuff. um, There are some cases where you have to use what they call prompted choice, where you have to say, listen, we can't use a default because it is so important that you choose here in some fashion. Um, and I think that's important. Um, and that's something that we try and use quite a bit. So, uh, sometimes there aren't always cases you can use it. I'll, um, there is a, uh, a firm who we all are aware of who ran as another robo advisor, ran an asset allocation, and at some point decided that a risk parity fund should be part of their allocation for their clients. And, um, it was higher fee than every, anything else in their portfolio. They were the ones managing it and they defaulted the vast majority of their clients into that fund. And I think they gave them, you know, like some kind of an opt out period um, where they could choose to leave it. But the default was you're going to be in after a month or two or something. And that's where, you know, you start to feel uncomfortable, right? Like in the absence of you paying yeah, a lot of attention, them in. I didn't know that. Form, wow. They're going to put you into this, this sort of this thing that benefits us in some fashion. And so I do think that's where trying to be a little bit cleaner about um, the lines of alignment and how you get paid in the service. If you're an advisor, should you really get paid for like the fund that you recommend? That's a little bit squiffy to me. Um, But I think that the better aligned you are, the less you are prompted to like make awkward decisions like that. We had the same thing where like we were updating our allocation. Um, We don't have a fund or anything. We were just changing the allocations. It would, it possibly would incur taxes for some clients. And so we said, you can opt out of this if you want to. We're not benefiting from it anyway. So it's the same thing to a client, but there's not the conflict of interest aspect to it. Well, yeah, if you, if you eliminate, so obviously a, a charge, an increase in fee is a conflict of interest that that's fairly, that's well established. I'm, I'm still trying to think of, you know, where does, where does behavioral management end and the responsibilities that come with that versus sales and marketing for the survival of the business or are they just the same thing? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, uh, go ahead. From my point of view, I'm, I'm lucky a little bit in that, um, actually this is a kind of neat way of thinking about it. Oftentimes when we write advice algorithms, we write them in a way that's agnostic about who's getting what in terms of like the funds or something. Um, so we were doing, we were writing out advice algorithms that had to do with where you should put money for retirement, 401k versus IRA versus taxable account, you, your spouse, et cetera. And one of the nice things was that we included like, what's the cost of the plan? What are the cost of the funds, et cetera? That like advice algorithm had no idea about who the provider was. 
Um, if somebody had a lower cost 401k, the advice engine was going to be like, you should use that thing. That's the better thing. So I do think there are ways like that. That was kind of like firewalled, ring fenced off from the rest of the business. Um, and we were told like, do this correctly. And then it's our job to compete on those elements um, so that we should be the best offering inside of there. Um, but it is a nice way of sort of blinding the advice to who's going to get paid for it. Right. And so you guys have been doing this for a while. Um, I was thinking about when I first started hearing about using behavioral finance through the email blasts that you give your clients in order to get them to save more, in order to do the right thing when there's a big drawdown. And I was thinking about it from the perspective of alpha creation, right? You, this is now, uh, it's not in its infancy. You guys must have done many iterations. And I imagine that there's some evergreen content, some evergreen, you know, positioning of words and sentences in such a way that you can maximize the client's, for the client's benefit, that you then have to move on to the next best thing. Is, is that true? Like, do you guys now have like a stock of emails that you're done with? And, you know, once you're done with that and it's become kind of standard, isn't it? What do you do with uh, that? Do you share it with the rest of the world or is that your like IP that you're not going to share with anybody? No, like my, my favorite um, example of this is Jason Zweig at the Wall Street Journal says, I am basically writing the same four columns. I just have to like figure out some way of doing it so that people don't realize that. Um, we are now at the point where, yes, in terms of those emails, like we've learned really interesting things like how you have to target them by how often the client logs in. Um, the tone and tenor of them, you want them to be actionable and positive and relative to them. People hate boilerplate and generic emails and so on. Um, so the the stage where we're at now that I'm most interested in is thinking about individualization, right? You know, like people who have different circumstances, new clients versus old clients, people who are up versus people who are down. Um, those are really different mindsets to be in and they should get different emails. And maybe the people who haven't logged in and who are acting well, I'm like, I'm not going to disturb them. I'm not going to be the one to bring it up at this point. So I think a lot of the learnings aren't necessarily about the content, but about the medium and how it's delivered and being very thoughtful about that. I love that. I mean, I think that that is, so really there's a lot of behavioral finance that is related to marketing. Like that's oh, yeah. just really good, targeted, thoughtful marketing. Someone hasn't logged in. They are staying the course. They are being disciplined along their path. Why would you need to bring the subject up? Yeah. You know, it, 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 it's that, that sort of restraint is hard though, right? You know, like there's yeah. a lot of like we should do. We should be act. We should be the goalie yeah. who jumps. Yeah. Yeah. You got to jump left or right. No, no. Just stay in the middle. Yeah. But I mean, again, the problem with markets is they're iterative. So if we know the goalie stays in the middle, we know where to roll the ball. So yep. the, to some extent, you <laughs> some goalies have to jump or the goalies that stay in the middle are useless. Anyway, well, anyway, what's interesting is that when you look at these, when you read these papers, they talk about, you know, you got the control group, uh, you got the AB group. And you get a result that's the average of those groups. But what you where you're getting to now is, I think in the previous podcast, you said something that I thought was very interesting, that even though there are certain things that humans tend to react to generally, that one of the things you were surprised by was how individual each each person is, how they are very much unique snowflakes. So I guess there's tons of opportunity to be able to figure out subgroups and sub-subgroups to continue to personalize to to those um, to those clients, and there's a ton of work to do there. Yeah, 
Have you, have you employed machine learning in that effect? Do you is that something that goes on where in order to sculpt the emails that you might send or those types of things? Is that or is that how is that done? How how do you ferret that data? This is uh like you know what's the what's the definition of machine learning? Um, so we definitely I remember a, an old article I think it's back from 2015. I was looking at how do I predict who is going to log in with what given frequency. Right. So like who's going to log in every day? Who's going to log in once a week, once a month? Because um, that's an input into understanding the frame of mind that the client is in is like, how often are they looking at this and catch, checking up on it? And so that element did look at kind of over the course of a person's lifetime, we're going to divide them. Some things are very obvious. Young men um, log in a lot more. If you have the mobile app, you're going to log in. Oh, that was the biggest factor. Right. Have you downloaded and installed the mobile app? Now it's accessible. It's easy. It's on the go. You're going to do that a lot. Um, so uh, Jeremiah Lowen, who's another sort of Twitter person who does, uh, he did a whole podcast with Patrick on machine learning. And he said, everything is just logistic regressions. It's a whole bunch of logistic regressions piled on top of each other. And I do a lot of logistic regressions, trying to figure out how often you're going to log in and all that sort of stuff. Um, so yes, but there is, there is nothing sort of in production that is a machine running on its own without somebody kind of having done a bit of research, looked at the algorithm, tweaked it, adjusted it, and said, I take responsibility for this. And like, I'm, I'm signing off on this algorithm that's going into production. And that's been very important that the nothing sort of gets through such that we'd be like, oh, it's a black box. We're not sure about it. You need to be able to like go in. This is the input. This is the output. This is exactly what they do. Right. So, so yeah, I guess machine learning is this trigger uh, word that, that causes a lot of angst or causes some angst in some populations, but yeah, there's, I mean, behind every machine learned algorithm is a person who designed it and has to interpret it. So, so I think that that is, that should be, you know, something that's understood as part of the process, but in that regression analysis, you know, there's a lot of knowledge there for the uh, informed um, operator, if you will. And so then, then that operator takes that knowledge and can, can glean some uh, insight from it. Do you find that, that, um, that observation frequency, does it have that linkage to outcome that we've sort of seen in some of these reports? Uh, you know, I, I actually, I'm not sure if this is a real report now, cause I've, I've heard both sides of it. The, the whole, you know, um, fidelity statements were analyzed right, and yeah. that were dead or didn't exist. Like they had the best return parameters. Is, is there, there truth to that? Are you seeing that realized? Is that a fallacy? I think I think there is. I think there are other mediators. This is a kind of analysis that I'd love to have more time to really dig into. Um, well, we're well, I got a couple extra beers here, so let's go. I mean, I, I got all day. But, <laughs> uh, oh, I, mean, I need to do the research myself. I, oh. need to, I need to have the time. Well, yeah, yes, do that, and we'll have you back for sure. Okay. <laughs> um, generally, yeah, yeah. I think we we've um, one of the the big mediators though is that the driver tends to be. Um, young men both log in more and are more likely to go ahead and do something. Um, we have been able to find some personality constructs like neuroticism that seem to mediate that. Um, there's a paper I wrote with Svetlana Fedunin that looks at like anxious people um, are more likely to um, log in on small days and then, um, uh, no, sorry, it's the opposite. More, they're more likely to log in on small days and avoid big days. Did I do that right? No, it's the opposite. They're more likely to look on big days um, and not log in on small days because they want to see the news. They want to see it reflected in their portfolio. Um, people who are not neurotic kind of just have lower levels no matter what. So 
one of the tough things is that um, whenever you're thinking about personalizing and making advice or designs uh, a little bit more intelligent, you need to have access to whatever the underlying dimension is that people vary on, right? Um, you can sometimes use rough proxies like age um, or gender, but really there's some underlying construct like neuroticism, which is a good, a good actual input. Um, not many, you know, advisors are like, can I give you this personality construct to figure out how you're likely to interact with performance? That's a big ask for a client, um, but they are there. And so I think that that's where it gets complicated is that you can do some really interesting things if you have clients who are willing to do um, unusual surveys, questionnaires, wear aura rings or whatever it happens to be uh, to give you more of like that relevant information. Yeah, get yeah, your heart rate discussing. while they're while, the, while they're checking their statement. We need to have your heart rate and your blood pressure. Yeah. Well, some of the work that Emily, who was supposed to be here, was doing, I was reading up on that, is using things like the aura ring or you know the blood pressure band on their portfolio management teams in order to understand their rhythms on a daily basis and see when they're more susceptible to making bad decisions. Uh, one of the one of the factors was that when they are in a high level of stress, they are likely to be more risk averse, which is not what they want. They want to be able to, to they want to, they want their PMs to be willing to take risks and correct risks. And so understanding what every, everybody has their own rhythm, when they're likely to do uh, good and bad decisions and then letting them do it when that's happening is is some of the work that's coming out of you know the next level of behavioral finance. It's pretty interesting. A neat element of this, I think you have an aura ring on, is that right? So an interesting thing is too, number one, um, these devices give us feedback about ourselves and that actually changes our behavior. So I have um, I have likewise some smart oh, watch. White, white coat syndrome. And um, I like, you know, like it, it went off because my heart rate was unusually high, probably caffeine or something, which made me go, okay, hold on, I need to calm down. I need to like go for a walk or something. Um, so those number one, the fact that like we have technology that actually is going to like improve our behavior by centering us or like helping us avoid the more extremes is incredible, but they're also like consumer devices. It's not, you know, there is not a huge gap between the best iPhone and the one that's available to us. Um, a lot of these are readily available to most people today. It reminds me that that story about the, uh, one of our colleagues worked on a, uh, a trading desk and they had employed a behavioral uh, coach to observe the team. And um, they would be able to identify through the behavior of the individual when they were going to, when they were going to uh, put a trade on. So you had a, a particular trade. I'm going to, I'm going to make up the the facts to change the, but you know, natural gas trader, they would observe uh, this individual, they would observe what they were, their body language was, what their ticks were, and they would say, okay, that person's going to put on a trade and that trade is, has a high likelihood of being profitable. Really? Oh yeah. Wow. But, but the then they would, were what they try, were trying to do was recreate the human via then going back and looking at the data that the human was seeing to see if there was any commonality with the data so they could recreate the human and put the trade on in the same way, which they could not do. Yeah. yeah. They could tell they when he's this. about to do something. They couldn't tell why and when, or be able to replicate that. Or replicate it. So here's this, here's the string of data that happened right before that. Now find those strings of data and make that happen over and over again. Cause then we don't need the human anymore. Um, and, and they did not have any success at that particular thing, but it was just interesting that there are, you know, I'm sure if you had a, 
And I'm not sure in this case if there was, you know, blood pressure monitoring, heart rate monitoring. I, I don't think there was, but it's just interesting that there's a lot of complexity in the human mind that is difficult to replicate um, when you're you're trying to um, replicate the human mind. I guess. Yeah. Anyway, very interesting. No, that's. So a, what is, I wonder if we can. Oh, um, go. oh yeah, it's, no, go ahead. It's Dan. a neat point in that I, I, you know, like I'm one of these people. Um, there are people applying behavioral science in corners that you don't even know about and think about. Um, I remember, I think there was a little, um, article a while ago about Uber employing behavioral scientists to figure out how to keep drivers long, um, driving longer and helping them to do better rides and so on. And so one of the things I think is that I'm, I'm public, I'm out there, I'm talking about this. Um, but I think this is more widespread than most people realize just because some people aren't comfortable. It's not nefarious. Some people aren't comfortable being public about it and talking about it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, we it don't is, know that it's not nefarious, do we? No. I mean, if well, I no, could, it, if the, I could program some things to make my driver drive longer and have better rides, I mean, come on. It all, yeah, it's all nuanced, right? And I think in Canada, they just, they basically, the government just sent out the app for everybody to download the COVID app for everybody to download so they can track what's going on. And half of my friends are like, there is no fucking way I am giving the government my personal information of my whereabouts or what I'm going to do. Like I, I, there's a, you know, there's a policy that they can't share private information and they're going to mask and whatnot, but there's, there's just no trust on that whatsoever. Right. So I can imagine you as a behavioral uh, scientist, can come up with amazing ideas to test out that walk that fine line of, okay, who's going to sign up for this. Right. And then when I get that information, I imagine there's, there's gotta be some responsibility there as to, you know, what you can use, whether you need to scramble the data and the individual and, um, and a lot of limits because of that, um, privacy act that I'm sure exists in the U S like it does in Canada. So have you guys been able to say, hey, dear client, uh, I want to identify how much how neurotic you actually are. Here are the five questions I need you to answer. Or have you shied away from that? Yeah, I think we've um, our product teams are like they're very strong on the like we're going to do the right thing for the client and not be intrusive. I think one of the things that's interesting about working in sort of like the app space is that people want convenience and quickness and ease and so on. Um, so we're, it's sort of an ethic or principle of ours that we don't ask a question that we're not sure we couldn't use to really do something in an immediate sense. Um, so no, we, we've never, I've thought about it, but we've never gone that, that route because the potential payoff isn't as like immediate and certain as we would want it to be. So you, you haven't done it, but you have, you haven't even, you wouldn't even do it if you asked for permission up front. You're saying, look, we're trying to find, here's a, a paper, neurosis is a key thing just so you know this is what we're looking for are you in to try it out like you, you won't even go down that route of actually letting them know that you're looking for neurosis oh no if we did it it would be transparent it's more a matter of like is that the most important thing for us to right. build that would help them right now again coming back to it um we often think that um a lot of like the important behavior around advice is like during a downturn and trying to predict that and manage it uh but to mike's point or somebody's point earlier you know like just trying to get people to save a little bit more or use the right accounts to save into is more effective and important. And you can do that every month. So you, you wrote a, you, you were talking about, uh, or wrote something called you got to have faith recently. Um, you didn't get into it in the last podcast and I was really intrigued to hear a bit more what, what it is and then what you're pulling out from it, uh, from a practical point of view. So I think for me, um, you know, it's one of those things like, like money, 
right? Like, why, why does anybody believe that their money is worth anything? And it's kind of this. Oh, amen. Can't wait to go down this <laughs> I'm not, rabbit hole. I'm not, I'm not selling Bitcoin. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> but it's just like a, a collective belief or narrative that becomes true because we kind of act like it's true. And when I was looking at um, why somebody would stick with an investment strategy, when it's risky or they're worried about it or whatever it is, they need that kind of a, a narrative that says, even though this sucks, even though um, value is underperforming forever, or um, even though markets are going up, I should be a low risk person anyway, but I, I'm missing out. You need to have some consolation, some sort of faith that you believe in that gets you through that. That's more important. The narrative is more important than the experience. And I think that that sort of um, building of faiths, whatever it might be, it might be market cap portfolio, um, it might be risk parity, smart parity, whatever it is, there needs to be enough sort of coherence that people can identify with it, that there's a social group around it, um, such that they can stick with it uh, through the really rough times. And I think that's, you know, it's kind of like that's when faith is tested is that this sucks, but I'm going to do it anyway. This this delves into a really important point that I think Adam was alluding to earlier, is that how do you know? How do you know that the market cap portfolio, like how do you know to have faith and how does how do you decide which way to tilt that faith? I mean, in the, this this is across so many domains, but let, let's you know, in, in the investing domain, someone comes in and signs into your portal and they're like, okay, is it market cap low fee? Is it factor-based? Like, how does that decision get made? Obviously, you want to try to guide towards better behavior, but you kind of want to be agnostic as to what belief system they might take on. And then, you know, in defense of a competitor who says, hey, you should probably do risk parity. I mean, for us, we would say, well, yeah, that is, that's probably the best no harm portfolio that you could do, but it's going to have tracking error to widely accepted benchmarks that are going to be difficult. So how do you, how do you deal with that very first principled type of paradigm before you can even, I mean, I get it. Saving is good, blah, blah, blah. But then the other stuff, like how do you say that, that that's where it gets confusing to me? I think uh, the more you can make it be a, not about the performance, but what the performance implies in the real world, the better. So uh, the two things that I've seen work very well, uh, number one, which is obvious, is like this is about your goal. You are saving for your daughter's college education. Um, the performance may be great or maybe low, but all we really care about is hitting this goal in 10 years. And that's what we're focused on. Are we on track? And all of a sudden, performance goes from being about what happened last week and goes into what's going to happen over the next 10 years and how do we need to set ourselves up for it? So there's an element of like, what are you focusing on? What is the, the lever or the conception they have of what kind of performance matters? Um, another angle of it that's new, but I think it's really interesting, is when there is something besides return that defines the benefit of the portfolio. So the easy case of this is stuff like SRI or ESG, green investing, where somebody gets to say, I'm investing and my money's growing um, and it has some other positive benefit in the world. And therefore, even if I don't have the best performing portfolio, I feel good about it. That could be 
you know, like religious, it could be a biblically adherent portfolio or a Sharia compliant portfolio, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But there are other dimensions that the person's saying, I care about these. And these are, there's performance other than returns that I'm getting from it. Excellent. So I like that. But then how do you construct that? How, how, what's, you know, so then, okay, so we have, let's say we have an ESG portfolio. So I want to be in businesses that are doing ESG stuff. And and I've found the ESG, I've found a portfolio of ESG um, values that are congruent with mine. And now I have to decide what's the allocation? Like how, how much should I have an ESG versus just being in very safe assets? What about other type of assets that I might think about? How, how do you go down that decision tree for people, for the average investor who, may have very little concept as to what the decisions they're making might imply. It's uh, it, it's interesting because I think it is both, it is so much like other, um, I'm going to use this word not pejoratively, but just descriptively, like fads that come along. Um, so in the ETF world, you'll get these thematic ETFs that are like hack, that are about info security or robo or whatever else, uh, gamer, et cetera. And, you know, there are these periods of time where something becomes very interesting to people. And the same thing sometimes happens in this values-based world. Well, okay, right now I'm really focused on for-profit prisons or, um, you know, uh, guns or something. And you almost need to be able to flex and say, this is what the person is currently really concerned about. And I think it's equally hard. It's easier to figure out people's values on something like those things. They're, they're more likely to know, oh, I don't mind for-profit prisons or, yeah, I hate tobacco companies. Then they are how do you feel about like gaming stocks? Um, right. So I think it's still hard. I think it's still very hard to sort of match a, a person to a portfolio in terms of values, but I think it's actually easier and more well-defined than matching them to a personalized set of stocks or something like that. Yeah. No, that's, yeah. I could, it's, it's, so this is, uh, have you put this to work? Like, is there a, a good fit? Like, can you do, have you done surveys where you were able to match value investors very tightly and then put them into value um, based investments yet or no? Nothing. I would say this is the next challenge for me is looking at that predictive element and saying, how do we, how do we quickly say like, oh, you obviously are like a value investor or a market cap or an SRI. Right now we let clients pick. So we effectively like give them a menu they can take a look at and, and pick whatever burger they want off of it. Um, what we do see is that the people who choose the sort of non-core portfolio. So if you choose SRI, you are a very well-behaved client. You know, like you're less likely to react to drawdowns. You stay, you save more consistently. So there is that evidence that there's sort of a better alignment. Um, figuring out how to figure out that alignment for more complicated things is really tough. So if somebody comes in and says, I want a smart beta portfolio, there's a question of, is that because you heard a marketing spiel about it and you just want anything labeled smart beta and that'll work? Or do you need something that's like borderline long, short? smart beta that, you know, you're going to be like, yeah, this is the the serious heavy juice. Um, so no, nothing to that degree yet. I think um, thinking like a doctor, it's both a matter of like, which antibiotic do you need and in what dosage? And we're just beginning to be able to sort of figure that out through a diagnostic. So Very what neat. do you think, what do you think the, one of the, one of the quotes that always got me with Kahneman is just because you're aware of the behavioral vulnerabilities does not mean you're immune to them. You're not. And so, you know, in, in the context of that 
idea. How much can we really expect to manage, overcome, nudge the the sort of the the behavioral challenges that we have? Do, do you have what are your thoughts on that? Like, how can how much can we do? How much free will yeah. do we have? Any any time it relies upon just knowing it and some kind of willpower, I will short that all day long. I don't think just knowledge plus willpower gets you much of anywhere. Um, I do this time for a living and like, you know, every night when I'm going to bed, I'm like, wow, here are the five mistakes I made that I myself would have predicted I would make through the course of the day. Um, The things that like work. So I sometimes think about it like if somebody is literally like myopic, like short-sighted, I I needed glasses growing up. Um, You could tell them to go around squinting all day or you could make them a pair of glasses. And so you have to say like, here's the problem. Here's how I'm going to create a solution outside of yourself in order to deal with it. So um, everything that I try and do for me revolves around like putting boundaries or automation or things around myself so that I'm set up either environmentally or, you know, like nudging to like habits myself. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Like when, when, when my sales guys come and say, Adam didn't show up to the meeting again. I mean, what's wrong with him? I'm like, what's wrong with him? How could you call Adam? Dude, like it's that, not what's dude. wrong with him. <laughs> it's what's wrong with you. You know your player. You know his biases. It's your, you're the one who should have reminded him five minutes before and then 10 minutes before that to make sure that he's there on time. This is your fault, right? That's making the glasses for my, for my team rather than expecting us all to change our behavior. Have you guys seen the... Um, Hold on one sec. Yeah. Have you guys seen Darren Brown's The Push? Yes, of course. Yeah, that's good. That's great. Netflix, right? That's yeah. good. That's so I remember, I remember, I like, I, So then have you seen Darren Brown's The Push? No. On Netflix? Okay, you got to see it. So this is a, a mentalist who did a whole show around, um, he, he was basically a set of actors with the exception of a few individuals that didn't know they were part of this, this scheme where throughout the episode, they nudge them towards compliance, right? They, they start asking them to break small little rules like, oh, we got to put out the, ve- uh, the veggie pl- platter, but we don't have any veggie meals. Don't worry about it. Don't tell anybody. We'll just put them out and nobody will know the wise, right? Small things like this. And the end is whether they will, it, it takes them to such a point where at the end they ask them to actually push somebody off a ledge or else they're going to go to jail, right? And... Anyway, at the end of this, what the thing that stuck with me is like, what did you learn from this? I'm like, well, what I learned from this is that, you know, I'm not going to become as compliant as I was before. I'm really going to take this. I'm like, no, you're not. You're going to kill the next. What I learned from this is that that would never happen to me. You are never going to get over that. The ultimate lesson from that episode for me was the very first five minutes where they went through the process of screening Mm -hmm. eligible candidates. Right. So they had a... a process where they brought, so they, so they planted people in a room and they, and they rang a bell every minute. And when they rang a bell, the planted people would stand and then the next bell, they would sit. And then the next bell, they would stand, et cetera. So they, they brought the actual contestants in and these the plants would them, rise, yeah. stand and not stand and not. And they would, they would select contestants based on whether they would arbitrarily stand and sit with the bell because no. they mo- they were modeled by the plants. Not, not right? only that. So did, not only that. What was crazy about that. 
What was crazy about that is that they would start with nine actors and put one uh, person, one non-actor in. And so the nine actors would get up and sit down and get up and sit down. And then eventually, if they didn't comply, they, would, they were asked to go until they brought in the next person. And then that person got up and down. Then they took out an actor and brought in another regular person so that it went on and on till the end. It was no actors. It was just these people getting up and down without anybody forcing them to do it. They had simply gotten yeah. into that rhythm and that's, that's how they were selected. But the, the best part of this, right, is that, yes, of course, all of the nudges were necessary to coordinate the final objective. Yeah. But none of them were possible if you didn't have a person who was already wired mm-hmm. to do what they were told, right? So, again, just emphasizing... Yeah, it was a selection bias, for sure. Yeah, well, there's also, again there's no free will. There's just, you're wired to be this way. We're going to find people that are wired to be this way. And then we were going, we're going to program them to do what they do. And it was, it was, I agree. It was, it was remarkable to see just how far you could nudge these people to be compliant. But to me, all of the interesting takeaways from that from those episodes came in the selective selection criteria not in the not in the actual nudging criteria but they're absolutely fascinating oh, and you should definitely is. dan i think they'd be right down your fair way oh yeah definitely push. Push. everything darren brown push. did that has done is amazing he did another yeah. one with uh there's a few of them actually there's there's two or three. Like, yeah. he gets anyway there's there's a few politically based ones that are good um right just look up darren brown on netflix and watch them all they're pretty fantastic <laughs> I did want to ask, though, like just, to, just to sort of nudge the conversation in a slightly different direction. I'm just wondering, because this is all too too positive and, you know, all the good we can do. Let, let's let's move it to... I tried direction. to go negative early. They wouldn't go I know there, you did. So. And, you know, yeah. there's just too much positivity in the conversation. So <laughs> I'm just wondering, given all your observations, you've had, what, 10, 15 years of observing the interaction of humans in markets. And I'm just wondering what that has done to your belief in the efficient market hypothesis? Oh, I think it's it, it's gotten to the point where I'm like, the the least amount of time I can spend thinking about it is the most effective thing I can do. Um, just like, uh, I remember th- having this realization years ago. Um, it was, I think I, you know, like I have a portfolio worth $100,000, me personally, me and my own money, right? And you have $100,000? Can, can I sign up <laughs> as a client? <laughs> can I borrow some money? <laughs> And um, I remember thinking, like, what's what's like a really good alpha number that like any manager would be super proud of? And like, let's let's just pick two percent, right? Um, so on my hundred thousand dollar portfolio, I can generate two grand a year, right? Like, come on, dude, that is not a good use of your time. You have other skills and things that you need to be doing. And so just there, that's sort of like stay focused on like whatever differential skills you have, where you have an advantage, where you're actually going to get like a payback on an hour's worth of your time and, and do that. And just like, don't worry too much about the specifics of it. I care a lot that, you know, um, I'm in a relatively good low cost portfolio, but I'm, you could, you could put me in a little bit of value. You could put me in like whatever. And as long as it wasn't anything crazy, I'd probably be okay with it because I have other stuff to worry about because it's not really, no, no, but you, you you made a leap there that we didn't need. You made an extra leap that we didn't need to leap. Like, what what has your experience in observing investors led you to believe about whether or not markets are informed by rational expectations and profit seeking actors 
who are constantly seeking an edge, like all of the, the, the fundamental tenets of efficient markets, what has your experience in observing investors led you to conclude about that in general without sort of whether or not it's meaningful for you to spend time thinking about deviations from efficient markets? Just in general, what have your observations in, informed? So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the Tesla example. Um, is Tesla like overvalued? I, I know nothing about the car market or like any of this stuff. I also don't know what the future is going to hold uh, in terms of electricity and so on. But um, I know that my dog walker is buying Tesla and Robinhood. And what this ends up making me think about is like, I don't even know that he's wrong. Um, and if enough people like him think and act the way he does, then Tesla is going to continue to be overvalued for a very long time. Uh, so I think one of the things that I've come to is that I think it's called the, like the, the weak form uh, or the Grossman Stieglitz form of like market efficiency, which is not that the market is right. It doesn't have like the right price, but that doesn't mean that you can do any better than it because if the market's consistently crazy and going all over the place, then like you're, you, you're trying to predict crazy people. Right. Um, so that's where I'm not trying to trick you into suggesting that people should seek alpha. I know you're no, not no, going to no. say that. So that's, this is that's genuinely... not, that's not where I'm going. I, I literally am just, I'm just genuinely curious because every year that goes by in my career leads me further and further away from efficient markets, just purely in terms of, of observing investor behavior. And I agree generating excess returns off misbehavior is a completely different question, and that's a and it's hard. I'm just wondering. I mean, this this castle is built on a swamp that assumes quasi. I agree, like um, weak form efficient markets, and I'm just I'm wondering whether anything are, are the are the errors random, hmm. so that it would yeah. cancel each other out, or like are there are there qualities of the interactions, systematic interactions that investors have that lead you generally in the direction of efficient markets? I, I genuinely don't know. Like it's, okay. it's just one of those like big questions that I, the one thing I like, I think of sometimes is like, yeah, is if people are all biased, but in different ways at different times, a right. system that aggregates them up in some way is going to be, I don't even know if it's right, but it's going to be pretty random and noisy itself. Um, so, yeah. So we, we probably agree that the market is efficient in that it clears trades in the moment. So that efficiency we can probably agree on, but that efficiency, or the inefficiency in that is that there are there is some hurting behavior that there is a, deviation from again what would be normal metrics which we don't know because they change through time um so it, I, I agree this is a hard I, i'm i'm obviously in the in the very weak camp is in they clear trades the market is efficient because it clears trades today mm. at whatever price it clears trades at is that the long-term value uh well, well and, we don't even need to e invoke equilibrium it literally is yeah. just in order for markets to be efficient, it assumes you've got independent actors, right? So it, 
if the error terms are uncorrelated, it means that all of the actors are acting. They, they all have error terms, but the error terms are, are not um, manifesting in the same direction at the same time for the same reason, right? So it, it requires independence. As, right. we, as we move into an increasingly connected and socially aware and mimetic society through social media and faster connections and 24-hour news, et cetera, is it even remotely reasonable to assume that investors are acting with Here. independent error terms? So here's here's where I want to go with this. And I love this. All right. Um, Ramp Capital on Twitter posted today. Imagine if you could see who you were trading with whenever you posted a trade. Right. And I want to take this a step further and say, imagine if they had to write a little memo. Uh, Betterment customers do this. Like when you go and you make a withdrawal or you make an allocation change, you can have uh, an investing journal on it. And so like you see stuff like I'm withdrawing $2,000 to fix my truck. Right. Imagine if everybody in the market did that and we all saw who we just traded against and like what their purpose was or whatever it is to see these clearing trades. Um, I would put money on you would see like nine tenths of stuff being like, I need some money for my truck. And the other guy is going to be like, over the next quarter, the Fed is going to do this, which is going to push this in this direction and then compensate with that. And therefore, I'm putting this trade on and taking your money and I'm going to beat you. It's like just people playing two fundamentally different games where some of them are trying to look at like that, that the information in the market and other people are just like, I just invested in my retirement fund for 40 years and now I'm taking money out. I have no view about markets whatsoever. So that's well, sort of like, that because price is set at the margin, if you've got a large number of investors that are trading randomly. So in other words, for reasons like I need money for my truck or, yep. you know, whatever, they're purely idiosyncratic. They'll all cancel out. And the Absolutely. only investors that affect price are those that are seeking an edge. Right. Yep. So we can discount those random errors. And the question then becomes, are the other investors that are actively seeking an edge independent? Are they making independent decisions or are they influenced by, as Mike alluded to earlier, in general or herd mentality? If they're not independent actors and rather they're acting on feedback mechanisms and reinforcement, then, I mean, the efficient market hypothesis is actually again, um, incoherent on its face, right? So it's, I just think it's, we all sort of, and increasingly it is true that we all operate on this idea that we shall invest passively and no market in history has validated that assumption more than what we've observed over the last six or eight weeks. But, I, you know, I, I just think it's, but I, it gets to what Mike was asking earlier, right? We're trying to do the right thing, right? You're trying to nudge investors to do sure. the right thing. What is the right thing, right? That is, a, that is a fundamental question that nobody nobody answered here. We all sort of danced around it. Mike tried to speak it at it. It's not your fault, that I'm not blaming, but it's at, at its root, this is something that we all end up having to answer as a question. It's easy to say, assume efficient markets, therefore passive portfolios, et cetera. But to, to dig into this is hard and it's messy. It's also not your role, right, Dan? Like you're not... A portfolio manager, so it's a tough thing to be asking. Then I think I will, no, and I, I'm not really. I'm, again, I'm not. I'm not trying to put uh, Dan in the corner, right? No, no. Um, this is this is free. You're asking me. Okay, here I go. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I was, yeah, I no, think it's, it's also it's, interesting though because it's going down that like, route. Who? What? Like, uh, what's a what's a good way of putting this? Um, 
how many dimensions do you guys think string theory needs in order to be true? Five. Exactly. What is right? Like seven? What is every book that data from a few very focused experts who really know about this stuff and study it and have strong opinions for one reason or another? The average person has no opinion about like that stuff, and they also have no opinion whatsoever about if you know x is overvalued and y is undervalued, and they don't need to go out and have those opinions. It's good to have people who are focused on it. And even better if they're kind of like their disagreement breeds trade pra- trades and price discovery and everything. But for most of us, like that is such an esoteric question that doesn't, I don't know, but there's not a real return on having a strong answer to it for each individual. Um, so it's like, I don't know. Well, the, this is the point though. I do think there is, there. this is the problem. At <laughs> what point is it 60 times future sales that the S&P has no future returns for your retirement fund? And do you have any implication or understanding of that for your savings? Like you have none. So what responsibility do we as advisors have in order to recommend things that are actually probabilistically reasonable to expect that they're going to meet financial objectives, right? Like, you know, it's it's just, it's easy, right? Because we can all sort of just assume the default option now. It didn't used to be this, this way, by the way, you know, like yeah. 10 years ago advisors actually had to make decisions because it wasn't just assumed that everyone was going to invest passively. It seems easy now because everyone's adopted the passive framework, but there was a time when people had to think about this. It's not passive, right? Of course. Right. So we have to, we have to think about what passive is, is the fund flows are following performance. They're not following passive. Passive would be a global market portfolio. And then you'd have to figure out some sort of way to encompass private equity in your portfolio, which there are ways in which you can access that. But again, that would be true passive. We have- I mean, we're we're embracing passive because passive has done well recently, right? Like if if we had just come out of 1989 Japan and we're Japanese- the the market cap weighted topics over the next five years was not going to attract people into passive market cap weighted Japanese equities, right? Market cap weighted U.S. equities have done very well recently, and therefore passive is the only way to go. <laughs> so to, to kid ourselves into believing that we're moving in this direction because of some coherent um, intellectual framework, I mean, it's fine. It's a good narrative. But the reality is we're all return chasing. Well, I would, so let, let, let's let the data speak for itself. If we, if we thought of a very large robo advisor who is advising a lot of portfolios in America, and we were to ask that person, how many of those portfolios are truly globally positioned as in they are global without a U.S. bias, what would percentage of those portfolios be? Yeah, and well, I, I didn't want to give Betterment a, a nod here because I think you and I chatted about this on our on our podcast, Dan, and I know you guys do your best to try and actually get closer to a global market cap weighted, truly, in a classical sense, passive portfolio, right? Which which is admirable, and maybe maybe we can sort of move but, off this topic and talk no, about no, the because I think one of the one of the key things is understanding what an investor. Going back to the uh, you got to have faith, right? What an investor is likely to stick to long term. I mean. This so is kind of like the, uh, the great, letters back and forth between Ed, the, uh, between Ed Thorpe and Samuelson, right? Ed Thorpe was all about the Kelly criterion as being the best possible way that you can compound wealth. 
the Kelly criterion, the way he was uh, he was applying it, meant that at times you could have 95% drawdowns, but you would never lose all of your money if you hadn't done right, right? Whereas Samuelson said, you're out, you're out of your mind. This is about a utility curve. Every investor has a different utility curve that you need to take into account. And there is no way that a perfectly mathematical equation that has that type of drawdown is going to get you to the goals that these individual investors need. So, you know, it's it certainly there's a balance between these two things of whatever we want, we think is uh, mathematically optimal versus what is behaviorally optimal. And no, that home true, country bias is a very real yeah. one as well. We've talked about this before, Mike, right? Where you have the rollers yeah. in Canada saying that the point. for investors is 60% Canada equities, uh, you know, and the rest is international when you're in, in Windsor, Ontario, but then you cross yeah. that bridge over to Detroit and all of a sudden, the optimal portfolio totally is to have different. a 50% U.S. equity-based portfolio. And, and this is utility. This has got nothing to do with optimality. Well, right? so, you know, and I agree that is true. It's a cross between behavioral optimality. And, yeah. yeah. It's just that even a home country bias is, is to materially informed by recency bias, right? Like Mrs. Watanabe the Mrs. Watanabe phenomenon in Japan, where, you know, 10 years after the peak in the Japanese bubble, the Japanese speculators or the Japanese investors at the margin didn't put a dollar to work in, in Japanese equities, right? They were offshoring. You know, if, if U.S. equities were to underperform materially for 10 years, then it would completely undermine the domestic equity bias and the passive equity phenomenon, right? This is a, it is a phenomenon that is, that is created by our experience. And if in a different experience and in a, in a future that has a different trajectory, we will express different biases and create completely new narratives to justify whatever default options we put in place at that time. And these will change over time, but to, to frame it as some sort of universal truth or universal reality, I think misses the point and also doesn't allow you to change your mind over time. Right. So you don't want to get too married in one paradigm. Right. You just, you're just going really against efficient markets and capital, capital asset pricing model and saying that that is the truth. That is, that is an academic, an academic axiom, which is not, not true. Right. What is true in, true in the optimal, the last optimal yeah. mathematically, there yeah. is no truth that any one of us can come to terms with. I agree. Yeah. So let's do the subject change. <laughs> I think we we do the subject change. Dan, um, from the perspective of individuals versus professionals, the mm -hmm. mistakes they make in in your research and in your decision making history, is there is there some significant differences that those who are highly informed in certain areas make versus those who are sort of uninformed? Is there anything that you know that you can you can share in that regime? I mean. It goes beyond just our domain, but do professionals make a significantly different set of mistakes that individuals or non-informed, non-professionals non make in the, in the domain of investing? I think, uh, it, you know, it's going to come down to things you already know from other professionals. Um, practice, feedback loops, the fidelity of feedback loops, and then being committed to the idea of actually learning um, as opposed to enjoying it. I think one of the big differences is that retail investors, so um, Barbara and Odin did it, or no, I think it was just um, Odin got data from day traders and said, 
let's look at whether or not they're successful and they're doing well. Um, and how long does it take them to realize that they are a good day trader or a bad day trader? And it took them about two years, right? And like they're, they're, they're trading a lot over this period. Um, the issue is that I think most retail people don't have really good feedback loops about whether or not they're making good decisions, bad decisions, what their sharp ratio is. They don't have the kind of framework to view that as um, information feeding back to them about how they're doing. So one is that I think professionals usually have um, intellectual tools, call it like metrics and everything. They're taking it seriously as a profession. So it's not like a fun thing. They're like, I have to do well. That involves being humble and realizing where and how and why I make mistakes and taking losses as an opportunity to grow, but also setting up those kinds of feedback loops that allow me to do that. And usually also um, working with other people, right? So uh, very few retail investors uh, have kind of like a very strong decision-making group where they have to talk to other people about trades before they go through with them and explain it or justify it. So I don't think there's anything intrinsic, but I think there's a lot about how you go about it. That's a lot like the difference between a professional basketball player and an amateur basketball player. Right. The stats are there and the stats are in your face more. And, and so you get that feedback loop. That actually reminds me, Rodrigo, of your poker group. Right. When, when the, the, the one where you're winning all the time, they, they didn't know. The Resolve Asset Management Group? No. Well, that one too. But the, the 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 other one where the other one you know where you might get paid for your winnings. Yeah, guys, we got Dan go. Oh, Dan, you gotta go. Yeah, we gotta let. We gotta yeah. run over and Dan. We will. I'm sorry. That's it. Exactly. Sorry. My All time right. is up here, but thank you very much. Well, thank yeah. you. Dan, yeah, thanks, Dan. Indulging us. That was great. Yeah. Take care, y'all. Happy Appreciate Friday. Well. That was. Wait, crazy. Mike, stay on though. What What do you mean? I'm just curious to finish that thought. Well, no, because remember, like your friends were, yep. so they're playing against you. You you played a lot of poker. You're yep. semi-professional, call it. Yep. And so they're they're seeing, they're observing their losses now because you're playing online and you have to add them up in a spreadsheet. Before yep. they would just pay and they would have the enjoyment and they'd pay their couple hundred bucks every so often. And they'd be like, oh, well, it's fun. And I'm a winner. None of my but groups now, are paid. Right now, they, now. now it's like, well, we could settle up, or why don't we just use it in the next boys trip two to three years from now, and then and then it'll hurt less, right? <laughs> so we're like, yeah, I guess that's that's fine too. When we can settle up, then well, the I'm trick is my money. When do you have to admit the losses to your spouse? <laughs> Here's what happened. No, not only that, the spouses would come and and sit next to them. So the a few guys that I that I played, the losers would eventually the wives would come and ask, How are we doing? Mm-hmm. Right? How we and all yeah. of a sudden I swear to you they'd start winning. <laughs> like something would kick in. And there was a moment there when we were settling up where guys stopped showing up. <laughs> and so we had to switch it and say, Look, we'll settle whenever, we'll do it in that trip, you know, you know what's pennies between friends. And all of a sudden, everybody kind of flowed back into the game. The losers continued to lose, and it was a little, a little bit less painful because the pain was going to come down the line. They didn't have to explain it to their wives at that point. So certainly, it's this, this concept of who you are today versus who you're going to be in the future, right? In the future, you're going to be a better poker player. You're going to be more disciplined. You're going to pay more attention, and you're going to make your money back so that you know I'm not going to get that pain in the present. They are just as distracted as they've ever been. They don't really care about poker. They just care about the conversation. Oh, please. It's, it's, it's simply, I, I want to play poker. And the second I admit my losses to my wife, I'm not going to be able to play poker again. 
It's, it's literally as simple as that. You don't think it's deeper than that? No. <laughs> I'm trying to make enjoyment. I get enjoyment out of it. No, Speaking of it, are we gonna are we gonna play this week or? I I don't know if we're gonna we play should, this we week. Do a, a resolve for a charity poker event one of these days. I'm doing that now. I, I help subsidize Rodrigo's in, uh, kids education fund. Yeah, so I've seen that. <laughs> do any of our do, do any of our listeners play poker? Like, you know, raise your hand if you'd like to to participate in some I'm kind sure of poker. Sure, Steve Merrill's on. So yeah, I'm not playing with Merrill. Steve's playing some poker. <laughs> I'm not playing with Merrill. No, hard no. You've been in the poker game for a while and you still don't know who the Patsy is. You're it. That's from. What Steve. about when you know you're it? That this is what's crazy. These guys know they're it, and they're like. Ah, still in it for the conversation, which is great. Oh, totally. Totally. All right, gents. That All was right, fun. Guys. I think we made Dan as uncomfortable as possible. So that's nice. <laughs> I don't I hope we're still softballs. I mean, what happens, that's what happens when he, he doesn't drink. Yeah. You know? Precisely. He didn't have anywhere he near doesn't the get it back. <laughs> you could have made us hurt. Anyway, good chat, guys. All right, good chat, gentlemen. Thanks, guys. See ya. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.